Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the Internet looking for interesting books, and we interview the authors of those books. This week, I'm happy to say we have Daniel Paris on the show, and he is the author of two interesting books, the first of which is The Strategic Dividend Investor, Why Slow and Steady... Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the Internet looking for interesting books, and we interview the authors of those books. This week, I'm happy to say we have Daniel Paris on the show, and he is the author of two interesting books, the first of which is The Strategic Dividend Investor, Why Slow and Steady Wins the Race, and the second of which, which has just come out, is The Dividend Imperative, How Dividends Can Narrow the Gap Between Main Street and Wall Street. Dan, thanks very much for being on the show today. Thank you, Marshall. Uh, Well, why don't you begin by telling us who the heck you are? Uh, I'm a portfolio manager for Federated Investors in Pittsburgh, uh, where I oversee uh, portfolios for a wide variety of, uh, of investors. And as you can guess from the titles of the books, those portfolios are uh, tend to be focused on dividends, and uh, that makes it a fairly distinctive uh, product in, in the marketplace, financial marketplace, and uh, is uh, uh, growing assets and, and uh gaining traction with a lot of investors in this country. Mm-hmm. And you've done very well with this. Well, it, it, the product, as I said, has, has uh, I think, meets uh, an unfilled need, a need that has emerged as our society has aged, as the baby boomers uh, move from uh, uh, accumulating wealth to uh, shifting to a phase where they, they are uh, requiring income from their uh, accumulated wealth as they move into retirement. Also, as the economy slows, as we move from the post-war period where there was uh, significant growth in the U.S. economy at home and abroad and, and very strong uh, numbers, uh, uh, gross domestic product numbers reflected in, in the, the rise of the U.S. stock market and so forth, all of that has come to a, uh, a slower pace of development. And as a consequence, this type of investment style is, is really coming back into fashion and uh, that has led to to the growth of our business. Now, you say it comes back into fashion. I know also that you're a historian. Was there a moment at which dividend investing was uh, hot stuff? Well, that, that's that's really the key, and that's sort of the underlying premise of, uh, of both of the books, is that um, business investing is sort of timeless. Uh, there's sort of effectively, it's not really a law, but I call it a law of present value. And... Uh, even in the wild and woolly stock market, even in the wild and woolly stock market of the 1920s and in uh, most places where there are stock markets, um, or just regular business people making decisions about uh, putting uh, on, uh, you know, adding a wing to the factory or buying a, a line of dry, uh, dry cleaners or a gas station or rental apartment buildings, you know, basic business decisions, oil wells and so forth, the law of present value really dominates the analysis of, of, of what something is worth. And that's basically the notion that um, 
any real investment, particularly financial investments, but uh, that you would go through where you buy bonds or stocks, but really any type of business investment, what you're willing to pay for that depends on what you'll receive from it in the future in cash discounted to the present time. And although uh, that seems very, you know, very basic, sort of a common sense approach to investing, um, you know, the stock market can be uh, can can depart from that. But but over the course of time, even the stock market has observed uh, the law of present value uh, over long measurement periods. And it was structured that way, that dividends, investing for income through the stock market for dividends was a very normal thing to do until until the 1980s and 90s really uh, brought a whole new paradigm to investing. And dividends really fell into the uh, into the background. It was all about stocks, and I, most of your readers will uh, listeners will be of an age that, uh, frankly, they grew up in that age. You know, remember the 1990s and the mm-hmm. stock market bubble and uh, everything that came along with that. And my argument in both of these books is that. Uh, the period in which basically all of us have been trained to think about finance, particularly the stock market, was itself an outlier. And that what is likely to happen over the next several decades is uh, a reversion to an intellectual and basic business mean uh, in which business investments made through the stock market look like business investments made anywhere else, uh, although there may be speculative bubbles here and there, now and again, they're still going to basically be in line with the law of present value. Uh, and we have built up our business, and I've written these books, uh, because we advocate that view, but it is still not the most popular view. It is the, the currently still most popular view is, is you know, buy low, sell high, repeat frequently, um, don't worry about the cash flows. It's not a business, it's a stock. We repudiate that, and uh, I think that, uh, you know, thoughtful investors... Uh, and people, anyone really concerned about their retirement funds will, will want to have an interest in understanding how the money's invested and what the, what the theory behind that is. And, and again, we represent an alternative to the current paradigm, which is all about share prices and what's on the television today and quarterly earnings and all of this, uh, the, the kind of culture of current investments. And, and instead we advocate this, I would say going, uh, going forward, but it's going to look a lot like the past in terms of uh, just applying business standards and acknowledging the law of present value uh, to, to even to something as wild and wooly as a stock market investment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let me ask you a historical question, and this is a little bit of field, but uh, I grew up in Kansas, and uh, my grandfather was a farmer and rancher, and I knew some farmers and ranchers, and their only investment vehicle, other than the land that they owned, were CDs. Everybody talked about CDs. Nobody talked about the stock market. It didn't even exist to those people. Are a lot more people in the stock market today than ever before? Yeah, I can I can age you almost precisely by that comment. So uh, CDs are uh, you know relatively recent phenomenon over the last sort of fifty years, and the time when CDs offered a me- uh, meaningful return would have been in the nineteen in periods of high inflation, basically. That's right. And so in the sixties and seventies and early eighties, mm-hmm. which is uh, I, uh, I'm willing to guess is about the time that you would yep. be coming of age and, yep. and discussing these things. Uh, we had a high water mark of inflation in this country in CD rates in nineteen eighty two, but from the Arab oil embargo in the early 70s through 1982, uh, it was uh, a period of significant inflation, and uh, inflation was much, much higher even in the years prior to that than it is currently or what we've become used to in the past decade. And uh, so I I think that's more a reflection of that time. Mm -hmm. But I was expecting you to say something else. Okay, go ahead. Which is that the farmers 
would have owned bonds. Yeah, they owned bonds too. Yes, that's right. Right. And and really that is a more historical uh, observation of a, a longer duration. The CDs were just a, a brief. Um, really up until the 1920s and uh, uh and then even more so perhaps as a consequence of the great crash, uh, bonds were thought of as investments. Stocks were purely speculation. Mm-hmm. That's a, a common bias. Uh, and so, you know, a, a people who could afford stocks would have invested in stocks as well, along with bonds, but, but bonds would have enjoyed uh, uh, preference, and that would have lasted in conservative communities uh, through uh, really less through the present period. Uh, uh, just a cultural observation, uh, and, uh, as opposed to a, a specific geography within the United States. Uh, Germans, uh, Germany, we, we try to sell equity products in Germany. It's very difficult. German investors prefer bonds over equities by such a massive amount that it, 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 it can be hard to sell equities into that market. Um, so there has been a, pre- a long-standing historical preference for bonds, but stocks were, have been there since the early 19th century, uh, available for investment. Up until about the 1970s or 80s, the vast majority of stocks were owned by individuals. Not the vast majority of individuals owned stock, but the vast majority of stocks were owned by individuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them uh, owned uh, just a few shares. Others were, you know, the... the uh, uh, the tycoons of the 19th and early 20th century that would get together in syndicates and, and, and push around the stock market. What's happened in the last 50 years and also contributed, I believe, to the shift away from dividend payments, from the shift away of investing in the stock market uh, as a business investment platform, which is how we, we encourage people to do so, was the rise of institutional invest, uh, investors, intermediaries. And again, this is a part and parcel of the emergence of, of uh, uh, modern portfolio theory, which is an intellectual paradigm that, that uh, gained speed after World War II and, and really took over the industry uh, in the 1970s and 80s. And this parallel to that, you've had a shift from most of the market uh, stock market is is held by uh, individuals, you know, often wealthy individuals. To the stock market is driven by institutions that are intermediaries for uh, everything from you know, small 401k plans and mutual funds to to hedge funds and uh, pensions and university endowments, which are are larger uh, institutions. Those intermediaries are are filled with a lot of PhDs, uh, a lot of academics. Uh, they love grand theories, and as I said, the, the key, I think, underlying point in uh, both of the books is that these grand theories, as they emerged in the post-war period, have gotten in the way of seeing a stock as a holding in a business and instead um, treat it as a piece of paper, uh, a speculative piece of paper that, that has some value uh, unto itself and is to be manipulated, as it were, not manipulated in the legal sense, but just you know, moving it back and forth. And that's, that's how we have, uh, both books reflected uh, a view that, you know, that, that uh, pushing business ownership through the stock market into the background has not actually been good for, uh, for, for most investors. Uh, it's been good for the brokerage community. It's been good for the financial media, for the, you know, the CNBCs and, uh, of this world. Booyah! And, uh, Kramers. Booyah! Booyah! <laughs> uh, you know, that very entertaining stuff, but it has almost nothing to do with investment. Um, and, uh, uh, so the, the stock market has come a long way. It was narrowly uh, owned by individuals, was viewed as a speculative platform, 
Um, but at least the stocks had dividends. And the speculation to some extent had to do with what would the dividend be. And underlying that is a core business notion that you're owning a business for the income stream. Uh, because these income streams are for companies that are publicly traded. The ownership stake is publicly traded. It's going to move around a lot, and it invites speculation. That's a natural part of open markets. There's not much you can do about it, nor should you. But the underlying premise was still, these are businesses. Is the, is the dividend safe? Is the dividend going to grow? And can we do a present value calculation? Very simple discounted cash flow valuation and net present value calculation that anyone in business should be familiar with uh, and, and determine whether this is a, a good investment or not. Uh, we, we shifted from that very common sense approach that dominated for 170 years uh, uh, to an environment in the 19, uh, really 1980s and 1990s that is, uh, forgets that there's a business underneath. And, mm-hmm. and that, 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 that I would argue is, is, you know, not the miracle of the stock markets, but one of the great attributes of an open society and a free society and uh, largely unfettered capital markets is that people can take an ownership stake in a business that they did not create and do not wish to run, yet they can become an owner of that business through, through the stock market and get a check quarterly for those businesses that are in a position to play a check. Mm-hmm. That's a really... Uh, from a historical perspective, just a phenomenal development. Mm-hmm. And for most of the time in the, the stock market, it, it's been treated that way. But uh, you know, in the 1980s and 90s, and continuing to the present day, the uh, 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 too many people, and I think too many institutions, are using the stock market for for, for really just speculative purposes. There's no uh, or minimal cash flow associated with with what they're buying and they wouldn't do that in the personal lives but they're happy to do it in uh, uh, if it's it, somehow it seems that it's okay to speculate through the stock market mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see what you mean do you think I don't know if you can answer this question do you think that most people that own stocks either uh, through pension funds or uh, directly in their own portfolios know that they are ownership stakes in companies <laughs> Uh, after you know, after a, uh, a couple decades of CNBC and Kramer, I'm I'm afraid not. Uh, but ask your grandparents, those of you, the listeners, uh, and I, I think that there was a greater sense of ownership at an earlier time. And and actually, in the second book, I uh, advocate uh, a much more explicit business ownership. Frankly, if you look even at, at some very high-profile investors like Jack Bogle, who created the the index funds, which are competitors for us, but He's very clear in advocating business ownership, not not stock ownership. Warren Buffett does things very, very differently than we do, but advocates business ownership. Uh, and it's it seems like it's falling on on on, on deaf ears. Um, but I, I I'm uh, maybe it's a hopeless cause, but I'm uh, still advocating it. Uh, there's an interesting fellow. 1960s and 70s, Lewis Kelso, who tried to uh, create a, a system whereby you know, employees would own a lot of stock in their companies uh, because it would give them a sense of an ownership stake in mm-hmm. the businesses, and therefore there would be better uh, labor management relations and so forth. You know, a little bit naive uh, 50 it years sounds later. sounds a little like communism. Well, it was part. It, well, it's a, the funny thing is, it was part of a a response to the uh, to post war Cold War. You know, the various intellectual paradigms, the the, the ideologies, you know, uh, them us, 
communism, capitalism, uh, but also the he was a labor attorney. Therefore, yeah. this was uh, you know labor and capital relations uh, can be frayed in the West and have been frayed in the West uh, for a long time. And and he was trying to say, hey, can we meet somewhere in the middle mm-hmm. here? Uh, and but it would be through a a market based system, just one where uh, employees would own at least some uh, uh, the shares of the companies that uh, they worked for, and therefore feel more aligned with the interests of the companies. It, would, it was designed to be uh, something that would uh, you know aid management and employees as well. So I, I may be uh, a little bit naive in trying to uh, bring out yet again that notion that owning a business should be um, have similar characteristics, whether it's a three-unit rental apartment building that you may own in your neighborhood or a stake in the coffee shop down the street or a stake in a, a major U.S. corporation mm-hmm. uh, that ultimately stock market offers a, an ownership stake. Uh, you may or may not want that. I think that, nevertheless, it's a much healthier approach than what has developed over the past couple decades, which is um, these are pieces of paper. Uh, let's see if we can trade them and trade them better than somebody else mm-hmm. you know, for for a profit. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting because I don't really follow the financial news. Uh, I listen to the BBC a lot, but I know that even on the BBC, they, they don't pay any attention to the things you're talking about. Uh, for example, when Apple uh, announces its earning quarterly earning reports, this makes the uh, what is essentially the front page of the BBC. It's quarterly earning reports. And the, and the notion, that the, the crucial fact, the sort of above-the-fold fact, is whether they met expectations or not. Not how much money they made, but whether they met yeah. expectations or not. What is that all about? Yeah. Well, uh, this is kabuki theater. Uh, it is uh, a very... Because I'm sorry to interrupt, but like I look at the number, I'm like, Jesus, they made a fortune. <laughs> like, just, they made so much money. But, you know, yeah. investors are disappointed because they didn't meet expectations. It's, it's theater, and it, the the earnings, uh, near term earnings expectations, and how that emerged are described in in, in uh, the books, uh, and why that's unhelpful to investors. Those quarterly earning reports, which are mandated by regulatory authorities in the United States, quarterly a number of non U.S. countries only mandate full disclosure on a semi annual basis, which I think is. Uh, 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 in some ways healthier. But uh, yeah, it, it, I, as a professional investor, I can tell you I find those quarterly report, reports and those earning reports and particularly the notion of earnings versus expectations to be of no use. However, that's what drives the brokerage business. It drives the news flow business. We have 24-hour news uh, cycle. you got to have something in there. Uh, and the stock markets are open between 9.30 and 4. And this is the stuff of, of that market. It's not the stuff of the business. If you consider Apple's business, did Apple's business change that dramatically um, over the last three months? Probably not. Now, Apple is a short cycle business and things do happen there. But if you look over the vast majority of businesses that people might be invested in, they're much, much longer cycle. And three months tells you very little. In fact, I make a point that any business, again, think about it in your own life. If you had to assess a project that you've launched and you would better show good results for that project, whatever it is, a new career, uh, learning a new trade, uh, relationships perhaps, if you were to measure that, assess it, and air it to the public every three months, what would your decision-making <laughs> what? Yes, exactly. What would your decision-making be like compared to the ability to uh, 
launch projects and measure them over a period of years mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and to determine whether a project is successful or not uh, over a period of years. I, for one, am trying to take up the violin. And if I had to report my progress as a 49-year-old taking up the violin uh, on a quarterly basis, the project would have to be abandoned. Uh, fortunately, I'm not public per se. Uh, I choose to disclose my interest in the violin, but I can allow that project to develop over several years. I, I mean, this is this is uh, you know uh, kind of a ridiculous comparison, but quarterly reporting, earnings expectations. Uh, have very little to do with business ownership and investment. It has everything to do with the business of financial media and the brokerage business. Mm -hmm. They've got to eat as well. And, uh, you know, you can acknowledge that. that that's an agency cost uh, where, you know, the, the, the upside of the stock market is the ability to take a stake in a company, again, I mentioned this earlier, they did not create and do not wish to run nor own in its entirety. The downside is that that ownership stake that they have going through the stock market. You go through the stock market and there are agency costs. And one of them is the, the, uh, that your asset reprices every day, even though you know that the business that you own does not change every day. Mm -hmm. The other is the circus associated with, with owning stocks. Um, I still think it's you know, uh, better than all the other solutions, uh, but it, 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 uh, ownership of companies through the stock market does come, does come at a cost. Mm -hmm. So there are companies that pay dividends and there are companies that don't, correct? Correct. Now, why is that? Well, again, I would look at, uh, you know, look at the, the apartment building next door or the, the oil well or the, the diner down the street and they speak to the owner about it. You know, there are companies that uh, may be not profitable and therefore can't afford a profit distribution, uh, much like the diner may not, may not make enough to, to allow a distribution to the, the diner's owners. Uh, and then there are companies that are growing rapidly. Uh, there's an online uh, uh, book interview service called the New Books Network, which is growing very, very rapidly. <laughs> and whatever it may earn, it is very likely, because it's in a growth stage, is going to reinvest every single penny that it can beyond you know meeting hosting expenses and, and and basic operating expenses back into the business to develop it further, and there are lots of businesses which are at that stage of development, and they quite properly should not pay a dividend. Right, but Apple Computer also, is not at that stage of development, right? Apple Computer is not at that stage of development, but there are many small companies that are at that stage of development, and, and it's quite right that not, they not pay a dividend. Okay. And then there are there are companies in sunset stages which you know uh, should should not pay a dividend, but. Even the companies that are growing rapidly, at a certain point, they're going to come to the stage where the reason to own the company is, because of the law of, the present, of present value, is a law of present value, that you are faced with an investment choice to own this business or another business. What do you ultimately get from a business? What you ultimately get from a business is, is your share of, of, of the cash flows, the dividend. And even though Apple... Uh, though it recently introduced a dividend, but let's use other companies that don't pay dividends, uh, like, uh, let's say Amazon and Google, or pay insignificant dividends like most of the tech space, uh, you still have to ultimately say, unless I'm going to trade this to somebody else, and that's all about uh, trader nation, which is a term I use in, in the first book, unless you're just planning on trading this to somebody six seconds from now or six months from now, the only reason to hold a business, the only reason to own a stake in the dry cleaner, the apartment building, the oil, or the diner, or 
uh, a public, large publicly traded company is what you actually receive from your ownership stake. Why would you own a business if not to receive a cash distribution from it at some point in time? So the, the, the dividend is, uh, expectation is there even for the tech giants that don't pay dividends or pay insignificant ones. But 99% of the owners don't view it that way. They view they, the asset reprices daily. They're not expecting a dividend. They hope to buy it low, sell high, repeat frequently. We live in a free society. People are more than welcome to do that. The capital markets invite that. It's very profitable for the brokerages. Uh, what we encourage our clients and what we've built our business around is, you know, apply business standards. And uh, so we, we, in our portfolios, just don't own companies that don't pay dividends or don't mm-hmm. pay insignificant or don't pay significant dividends. I listen. I, uh, I I read with wonderment, you know, some of the stories about these companies, but they, you know, from a business investment perspective, they, you know, they don't they don't really exist. They they do exist and are quite robust from a stock speculation perspective. And again, there's nothing wrong in a free society with allowing people to 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 do that, uh, but. Uh, it, it's not how we are set up to operate. Mm-hmm. Also, there seems to me a kind of, I don't know what to call it, but um, almost sort of maybe it's a naive sense of fairness. And that is if you invest in a company and they start to make money hand over fist, you think to yourself, well, maybe they ought to pay me some of it. Because after all, I yeah, helped them make money hand over fist. Yeah, if you provided the capital at the beginning, if you're a business owner, you would ultimately expect some sort of payment. They'll come back to you, and this is, again, part of the, a basic agency cost. Remember, you did not create the company, no. and you do not run the company, and there's an agency cost that you've appointed a board of directors that in turn does appoint a CEO. And so there are a couple intermediaries, and so the basic profitability of the business gets filtered a little bit in that the CEO says, well, we could do this with the cash. Or the board of directors could say, we could do this with the cash. Now, the preference for the CEOs and the board of directors up until the 1970s and 80s was that, you know, we, we invest in our businesses, capital expenditures, maybe some acquisitions. Really, that which is left afterwards is distributed to company owners, just like in a private partnership or a private business. Um, and the amount of the dividend payout was much higher, as I said, for about 100 50, 170 years uh, of, of U.S. corporations than, than it became in the 1980s and 90s. Uh, those people began to change their minds in the 1980s and 90s, uh, aided by, as I mentioned earlier, sort of the, the uh, changed paradigm about investments, modern portfolio theory, that really took over in that period and led directly to the decline in the uh, the payout ratio to company owners of company profits for publicly traded corporations. So your naive sense of, hey, I own a stake in the company. I see the company makes a lot of profits. I only get maybe about a third of them uh, is uh, understood. But it, it, it's, you know, uh, it's, uh, as I mentioned, it's uh, kind of the price you pay of not having created the corporation, owning it in, in its entirety or running it directly. We've shifted for companies, uh, investors from, uh, you know, when you, when it's an apartment building or a diner, it's the, it's the owner operator model. Mm-hmm. You own the business, you operate the business, you make the decisions, you may choose to invest back in to build another wing. Uh, but you understand that as the owner, that means that you're probably going to get less near term cash flow. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you, uh, uh, break away from that model and you allow someone else to be the operator, even though you're the owner, you are, um, 
uh, you've lost some of that control. And uh, for U.S. public corporations, again, the the, the directors of the the corporation, the executives, are now deciding what's in the best interest, long-term interest of you, the owner. You know, you have a choice. You can sell the shares and move on to somebody else. What happened in the 1980s and 90s is that uh, the boards of directors and the, um, uh, the executives kind of moved en masse away from dividends uh, towards uh, share repurchases and large-scale mergers and acquisitions and other usages of cash, which I, I argue have not been in the best interests of, of shareholders. Mm-hmm. Before, we, before we go on to explain why they did that, because I think it's an interesting historical question, um, uh, riddle me this. Uh, you point out in the book, I think you point out in the book, if I recall, there's a chart that shows that for a certain subsection of companies, I guess mature companies, there is a relationship between dividend payouts and the value of the company. Mm-hmm. Is that right? So yeah, and it's it's specifically the growth. Yes, the growth in the of, dividend. Yeah, and the growth in the share price correlate very clearly. Which is to say that if a business don't think in terms of a stock, think in terms of just a mm-hmm. private business. If a private business is doing eight percent better one year than the previous year and it distributes 8% more cash to the company owners, then holding other factors equal, that business is worth 8% more. That is, if assuming the new level is 8%, the, the new level is sustainable, that the, you know, it will be worth 8% more. Mm-hmm. The math is very simple. And that is, and that is reflected and, in equity price, or are we just not talking about stocks here at all? Just forget stocks. It is what I show is that for those stocks that have dividends, and this is from a particular data set from 1962 to 2010, I believe. Uh, those stocks that have dividends and were publicly traded in 1962 and avail and still publicly traded and had dividends in in both periods, 1962 and and uh, 2010. They the the correlation is very very high uh, between the share price movement and the dividend growth rate. Mm-hmm. And so. And, uh, just like what I would argue is just like in a real business, that the change in the value of the business follows the change in the value of the distributions from the business. Um, what shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone but does, is that even applies to stocks. Now, it's hard to see that because there's so many businesses out there without dividends right now mm-hmm. that just flop around, move up and down. But if you do take a business-like approach to it and look at all the, you know, most companies in 1962 that were publicly traded had dividends. If you look at them now, you can see a clear correlation between the, the, uh, the share price movement and the, uh, the, the dividend growth rate. And, uh, you know, that, that's hard to appreciate in, in the Kramer error, mm-hmm. uh, where it's all about share prices without regard to, to, to dividends. But if you look back, and I would argue, and this is a key point, if you look forward the next 20 or 30 years, that basic business law, that present value law, has to be re- come back and be reflected in the stock market. Our, our business, uh, the portfolios that I manage, and, and the arguments made in both books really are strongly suggesting that this period, 1980s, 1990s, and lingering to this day, are an outtake, an anomalous period of uh, in which there was a disconnect between the value of businesses and the cash flows distributed by businesses. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I guess one question I have is, did the boards and the CEOs of these companies come to realize this at some point? And if they did, why did they stop or um, draw down the amount of dividends they were giving? 
Because it seems like giving dividends is good business. Am I am I wrong about that? Yeah, and, and again, it's still good business in private partnerships and privately owned businesses and anything that is, uh, I think, where you know the people's feeders are a little bit closer to the ground there. Uh, the change occurred, and, and this is, I, I think, uh, some of your readers who are in the social scientists, uh, listeners who are in the social sciences, um, uh, and have watched their... Uh, disciplines change in the post-war period may may have some you know uh, see something familiar in, in what I'm about to say, and and that is that the theory of investments really changed dramatically. There wasn't much of a theory of investments, frankly, prior to the 1950s, and the theory of investments that came into being starting in 1952, and then uh, was really the meat was uh, put onto the bone, as it were, in in the 1960s and 70s with a, a lot of of uh, academic research, uh, much of it, not all of it, much of it associated with the University of Chicago, uh, uh, shifted or created this investment paradigm, modern portfolio theory. Uh, Modern portfolio theory has many, many virtues. One of which is it deals with diversification in a, in a uh, you know complex fashion. In diversification, there was no real way of uh, that is. There's a kind of an intuitive notion. Everyone understands some sort of diversification in risk in their life. That you know, if if you're a caveman and you want to go after the rabbit, you're fine, but it's not going to feed you as long as if you go after uh, if you go after the saber-toothed tiger. But if you go after the saber-toothed tiger, there's some risk mm-hmm. that is higher than going after the rabbit. Uh, there's a nice line in Shakespeare. Uh, from the Merchant of Venice, also where uh, uh, you know the diversification is stated quite poetically. So the, you know the basic notion of diversification has existed, but modern portfolio theory really puts a lot of meat on the bones concerning diversification. Mm-hmm. Also, there's another real, real problem in an investment theory. It's one of the reasons why it didn't exist prior to this period, which is an expected rate of return or a discount rate. And mathematically, they're very closely related, and there wasn't much thought given to that prior to these developments in the 1950s and 60s. And so uh, giving modern portfolio theory its due, that is how, and and if your listeners are questioning what's modern portfolio theory, just look at your 401k. Uh, many of your listeners may be academics. Go look at your your, your TIA Craft portfolio. It is the embodiment of modern portfolio theory. A combination of the, the TIA side, which are fixed income instruments, and the Craft side, their bonds and uh, uh, equities. Uh, uh, there, um, your your brokerage, your financial advisor, um, the mutual fund structure, everything that you know about investments, even as a retail investor, really. Your experience is, is absolutely defined by, by portfolio theory. Your grandparents knew nothing of this. They mm-hmm. had prior to the 1950s, they had none of this. One relatively small element of modern portfolio. I'm not going to claim it's the major element because modern portfolio theory deals with diversification and risk and return, and those were valid challenges. I think they've it's gone off the rails the last couple of decades. But one relatively minor element of that in the time. This was articulated first in 1961 by um, uh, two academics, uh, uh, Miller and Modigliani, uh, hereafter referred to as M&M, uh, <laughs> popularly referred to as M&M. Uh, they, they were dealing with a b- different issue of, of, of corporate structure within the framework of, of uh, these new developments, these kind of social science 
monetization of, of finance, which just had not existed, the quantification of human behavior, the establishment of rules. It's parallel in political science where you go from a narrative kind of great man tradition to a lot of political science departments today are, are look like you know they're, they're, they're math departments to um, even the, the emergence of macroeconomics as a, a, a comprehensive discipline in, in, in the post-war period. Uh, prior to that, macroeconomics or economics was understood in a very different fashion. Well, so th- this systematization of thought quantification, the creation of a real lot of nice whiteboard theories about human behavior, one minor f- formula within that whole complex pushed dividends into the background and said that in an academic environment, in an in a ivory tower, in a whiteboard or a blackboard at that time, uh, investors, if the following conditions apply, and these conditions only can apply in an academic classroom in the ivory tower, they, they do not apply in the real world. But if all these conditions apply in order to make the math work, investors would be indifferent to a share price movement versus a dividend payment. You make your money one way or the other. Mm-hmm. That's an environment of perfect rational investors, mm-hmm. equal information, no taxes, no transaction charges. It completely does not describe how the world works, but it does describe how academics think. And uh, they, in 1961, as part of this broader kind of advance of, uh, of the social sciences, posited this notion that you know dividends aren't, don't really matter. Mm-hmm. Well, as modern portfolio theory took off and, and became widely disseminated in the emergence of 401k programs and mutual funds and broader ownership of stocks, it came with the package. And uh, in the 1980s and 90s in particular, um, company executives with their consultants uh, who were reading the academic literature just felt less of a need saw, uh, to, to pay a dividend or to pay a significant one and were uh, convinced by the, the brokerages, their investment bankers, uh, backed by the academics that, you know, it's fine. You, you, you're a growth stock. You're not a, you're not a business. You're a growth stock and you just reinvest everything back into the business mm-hmm. and you can pay dividends later, if at all, because if people want to make money out of their ownership stake, all they have to do is sell the stock. Mm-hmm. And hence was born trader nation and the dividend gets pushed back and back and you know reasonable reasonable board directors reasonable business people were persuaded and the dividend payout ratio fell the yield of the market fell and we had uh, uh, we had trader nation which is all about trading stocks not ownership of businesses mm-hmm. that's, that's very interesting so if i could summarize modern portfolio theory in popular sayings it would be um don't put all of your eggs in one basket. And then there's this one formula that says, you may think that a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, but it isn't. People don't think that way, right? <laughs> uh, the, the two in the bush has gotten way ahead. Yeah, the two in the bush and, gotten, yeah. uh, the, got yeah. way, way out front too. Yeah. And, and people said, you know, actually don't, how about, I'll take 10 <laughs> five years down the road. You don't have to give me anything now. It turns out, down the road, there weren't any birds left. Yeah. So uh, uh, the, the, a bird in the hand versus two in the bush is a good way of saying it. You know, we, we're definitely a bird in the hand variety. Uh, modern portfolio said that doesn't matter because a bird in the hand is equal to two in the bush. Don't don't worry about it. And uh, the uh, the, dis- the dividends uh, as a consequence uh, uh, disappeared. That is a, a real uh, crude rendering of modern portfolio theory. Yeah. But from the perspective of ownership of businesses and receiving a cash stream 
uh, for your ownership stake in a publicly traded business, that's uh, uh, that's a reasonable summary. But it does seem to me to sever a kind of vital, at least intuitive, connection between you and the company or their portfolio if they're not actually giving you any cash on a regular basis. You know, it would be as if well, you say to somebody, okay, I'm going to loan you $100, and you don't have to make annual payments. Just pay me off at the end. And like, what well, happens? You, you see what I'm saying? It's like, it just doesn't... Yeah, but there, there, there's actually a data series issue, which is really interesting, and I, I'm kind of uh, grappling with this myself now. If you if you have if you're trying to address a problem, but the only data series that you have, it, you only have one data series, and it's sort of partial, and you're going to do all your analysis based on that data series. It's very likely that your theory that you, you uh, come up with to explain what you're grappling with is is really going to be reflected on that by that data series, mm-hmm. and the. The, the the data series here is that people seem to just be bedazzled by asset prices, not asset cash flows. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's a, an interesting historical source for that. And I'm not certain if I can make the completely strong link, uh, com- compelling link, but at least I'm thinking about it, is that the very early stages of financial research had to do with commodity prices, where truly it's all about the price. It's not about, you know, you you... you these commodities have prices. They can be resold in the marketplace, whether it's you know corn or cotton. A number. Of, it turns out a number of the uh, early pioneers in financial research either had done work on commodity prices or were partially interested in commodity prices as well as stock market prices. So what they're looking at is a data series, whether it's the stocks or the commodities. Looking at is uh, is the prices. They're not really interested in the cash flows, in part because commodities don't really have intrinsic cash flows. They're not uh, an ownership stake in a business. They're they're just really the prices for a good. And so um, there has been a uh, a lot of I, I would argue that modern portfolio theory is focused on the on the prices rather than the cash flows because that's that's what they were looking at, mm-hmm. and they built a theory about that which they were seeing. And um, as opposed to a business ownership theory, which could be built around uh, ownership of stocks that happen to be publicly traded, mm-hmm. businesses that pu- happen to be publicly traded. Mm-hmm. And this gets back to the Apple example in the quarterly, uh, the, the quarterly report. I mean, again, it looks to me like Apple made a heck of a lot of money. <laughs> Apple, Apple's really uh, 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 relatively easy to, to pick on from a dividend investment perspective. So certain companies make a lot of money, but they turn around and have to spend an enormous amount of capital expenditures. And if you, you know, a brief detour, very brief in, in accounting, let's say you make a lot of money, but you, in order to keep doing that, you have to spend a lot in uh, uh, building plant and equipment. Uh, you, that same cash that you made, you turn around and spend, uh, but it doesn't show up against your penal. It doesn't actually lower your, the profits near term because you depreciate those fixed assets over a long period of time. Right. So uh, as a result, your, your income state, you're, you're still showing a lot, making a lot of money, but in fact, the cash flow not, may not be anywhere near as, as robust. And those companies can make the argument, hey, I know we're showing significant book income and, and so forth, but uh, from a cash flow basis, our dividend is modest because we have these capital expenditures. Apple does not have that excuse. Apple, Apple is in many ways just an intellectual property company, a design company. It doesn't have it doesn't it makes relatively little. It has other people make things for it, mm-hmm. 
and therefore it does not have, given the size of its uh, business, a huge capital expenditures budget. Therefore, a- Apple really is an example of a company that is making a lot of pro- uh, profits but uh, does not distribute them in a material way. It ha- announced a very large share repurchase program, I think 50 or $60 billion uh, about a year ago. So it's just turning around and, and putting the money back into the stock market, which doesn't really help um, company owners at all. Uh, but Apple is a, unfortunately a good example from what, the point you're trying to make because they don't have a big capital expenditure budget. They do make a lot of money and they don't pass it on to, uh, to shareholders. Uh, they pass most of it on to share sellers in the, in, uh, in the form of a share repurchase program. Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. But, and here we come to the mentality of investors, if investors thought about companies differently, and specifically if they weighted uh, dividend payment more highly than they do relative to equity increase or decrease, then presumably the payout of a dividend would be reflected in the price of the stock. People would say, well, they really should be paying out, and they're not, so I'm going to sell their stock, and therefore the price of the uh, stock would decline. Yeah, over time, uh, I would expect to see mean reversion there. That over time, I expect to see people pay for an asset, that which they would receive, the present value of what they receive from that asset is, is roughly in line. And to stop paying for assets where the present value of what they actually receive is, is, is not there. Uh, but it took, uh, as I mentioned, this kind of trend away from dividends uh, uh, started in the 1980s and, and picked up speed in the 1990s. It has stabilized now. We're actually now are moving back in the, in the right direction. The dividend payout ratio is moving up. The yield of the market is still very low. It's not still has a doesn't have a very attractive net present value. But I, I think the worst is over. Uh, but it will take you know it took two three decades to get to this situation where people are accustomed to paying for something and not getting much for it. it, it I believe it will take a while before people and companies go back to this is a business. Here's Here's your uh, your share. Here's what you get for your share. You know the the strategic dividend investor was written for individual investors. That's the first book in 2011. Uh, uh, for individual investors, saying seek out dividends. The dividend imperative, which just came out, was written to the corporation, saying, "Hey guys, you are businesses, particularly the big ones. You should be distributing much more cash than you are. Otherwise, an investment in your business doesn't make much sense." Uh, you want to really consider a higher payout ratio. And, and uh, I am actively engaged with corporations that we both we own in the portfolio and those that we do not, uh, in, you know, pointing out sort of the obvious thing that many of these companies are very large. They are not going to grow at 20% a year. <laughs> They're growing at the rate of GDP mm-hmm. a, a little bit better, a little bit worse. Given that reality, they should have much, much higher dividend payout ratios than they currently do. Right. But still, not growing is a very fine thing from a cash perspective if you're profitable, right? I mean, if you just make, uh, you know, year in, year out, if you make a certain, you know, if you're making 14% on investment, that's really good. You know, you yeah, if, if you, if, you know, a company that is paying out a, a share, uh, paying out a, a dividend, even if it's not growing the dividend, there is a present value associated with that income stream. Uh, and, uh, you know, the company doesn't have to, to grow in order to be an attractive investment for clients. Now, generally, that's kind of viewed bond-like, and, and one of the reasons to own equity rather than debt, that is to own stocks rather than bonds, as part of somebody's portfolio, is that 
you have the realistic expectation of growth over time, even if it's just growth in line with GDP, whereas with a bond investment, you sort of know exactly what you're getting. It is a flat income stream. It hopefully has a positive net present value, but it is, it is uh, flat and isn't going to help you during times of inflation, whereas ownership of a stake in a business at least gives you the possibility of having a rising income stream, whether that is a private business or a, or a publicly traded stock. Mm-hmm. Sure. It, it, this, sort of, this may be a ridiculous analogy, but I know at one time you owned a Saturn, and Saturn was the, uh, the car company that was going to cut through all the middlemen and just tell you exactly how much the car was, and that's it. There's no negotiation. You walk and you buy it or you don't. Um, it strikes me that I would want to invest in a company that said, look, we're going to cut through all this and you're going to know how well we're doing by the amount of money we give you, right? And if it goes up, we're doing well. And if it goes down, we're not doing well. And you can hang on or not hang on. Is there anybody who thinks like this? Or is it, see, and let me, let me add one more point. And that's because, and again, I'm speaking as a very naive, uh, not investor, but as a, a very naive um, sort of economic actor, I'm kind of conservative and I really like accounts that bear interest and it's a solid amount. It's like, I'm going to get that right. And I'm going to know how much my investment is worth by how much I get from that investment. You see what I'm saying? And that gets yep. me closer yep. to the investment. It's like, okay, I know how they're doing because I'm looking at how much they're giving me. Yep. Does anybody you, do that? You're, you're, uh, <laughs> I, I, I wish I had a uh, good words for you. I have nothing good to tell you. So, uh, up until, as I mentioned, the 1980s or 90s, but uh, and it came down a little bit in the post-war period during a period of growth. Most U.S. stocks, although they could be speculative, most U.S. stocks had very high payout ratios. And uh, you may know the name uh, Benjamin Grant, sort of one of the the fathers of modern stock analysis. You know, he advocates in looking at companies, suggesting they have anywhere from a two-thirds to a three-quarters payout ratio. So a company that had a good year would pay out two-thirds to three-quarters of the profits uh, as a dividend. If it had a bad year, it would be a smaller dividend, but it would still pay out two-thirds or three-quarters of, mm-hmm. of, of the profits. So what you're looking for as a pass-through did exist as the U.S. stock market. It just hasn't existed for decades because now the payout ratio is so low uh, that uh, the yield that you get, the cash that you get from a stock market investment, a generalized stock market investment, the, the S&P 500, is, is, is uh, inconsequential. There are, however... Exceptions. We try to populate our portfolio with exceptions, but there are also types of, of classes of exceptions. There are publicly traded real estate, real estate investment trusts. It's a, it's a particular type of investment. It, by law, has to pass through 90% mm. of its net income. That's nice. Like you can own apartment buildings, mm-hmm. and you don't have to change the light bulbs or fix the plumbing. You, <laughs> else you pay them to do that, and you get 90% of, of the profits. Yeah. So that, that does exist. The other option or asset class is that this social science-led quantification of human behavior, uh, systematization of portfolio diversification and risk and return characteristics really caught on in this country and led to the, the dividend going down. It actually didn't catch on as much outside the U.S. And there are companies, many of which are sitting in your cabinet, your medicine cabinet, your refrigerator, uh, and throughout your life that are, are non-U.S. listed corporations headquartered. They're available for investment in the U.S., but they're headquartered, many of them headquartered in the U.K. And uh, to the credit of the U.K. investment culture, although you know they're just a little bit further from the University of Chicago than New York, they, um, 
they didn't, uh, you know, the, they didn't take this up in, with such enthusiasm as U.S. investors have. As a consequence, the payout ratios in developed markets outside the United States, particularly the U.K., where I think most U.S. individuals would have some level of comfort in investing in, in companies that they know, um, but the payout ratio is much higher. The commitment to the dividend is much higher. In our products here, we we have a clear uh, bias uh, in, in you know including where we can those global corporations based in the UK that have these for that very reason they have a greater commitment to this is a business the purpose of the business is to pass through the profits to the owners of the business and that's what we do and that that notion is uh, uh, much more in evidence in in the UK than it is in this country so it can be done here at Federated, we, we, we do our best uh, through careful selection and, and through you know, ownership of these types of assets. Uh, it can be done, but uh, you know, uh, if enough investors say, I want a share of the profits of the corporations in which I'm an owner, uh, you know, and begin to act in that fashion, U.S. corporations will eventually get the message. And I, again, I end in, in the dividend imperative with the point that I actually think there's some social utility to to getting uh, Main Street and Wall Street on the same page. I mean, it's uh, it's a notion that would be widely rejected right now. Everyone likes to beat up on Wall Street. Wall Street are these just nothing but kind of thieves and so forth. But uh, there is a a purpose in in the capital raising function and and in in the capital markets and, uh, for a, a vibrant economy. And I I think that it that that goal does not have to be at odds with kind of main street values. They can be brought closer together. They were closer together. And I, I think that over uh, time, uh, again, the, the payout ratios and paying company owners on main street for their stakes in U.S. corporations will actually kind of resolve some of the, or help resolve some of the, the conflicts between main street and wall street. Mm-hmm. I guess that, again, you mentioned main street and I'm on main street, that the swings in stock prices that are trumpeted by the media generally, but especially financial media, just seem bizarre to me. And again, I keep going back to Apple, which, you know, I've used their products forever. It's a great company in many ways. I, you know, I like some of the directions they go. I don't like other directions they go. I own a lot of their products. My friends own a lot of their products. They make a lot of money, but somehow their stock price just seems to, you know, it was worth, I don't know, I don't, I don't have the figures, but it's down like $100 from six months ago or something. It just seems bizarre to me. Um, and, and I don't really have, I don't have any explanation and I don't think most people on Main Street do. Uh, and I would, I would, in a moment of clarity, tell Main Street, you guys got it right. There is no logic to this. And uh, that uh, uh, although Apple's business and other businesses can be fast moving, the degree to which the shares move around is, is, is so much greater. One of the points that's kind of buried in the footnotes of the book is the standard deviation. And here, here you know, it's a modern you know, statistical term, but it's not part of modern portfolio theory. Standard deviation exists outside the framework of, of, uh, of modern portfolio theory. So I, I use it as opposed to a number of other measures of volatility that are really part and part of, of modern portfolio theory. The standard deviation of dividends received from corporations is a fraction the standard deviation of the share price movement. It makes sense. The dividends are set. They are announced. They pay four dividends a year for U.S. corporations. Once a year, they change the dividend. They go, it goes up 3%, 7%, 10%, whatever the case may be. Share price changes 250 times a year. It would be hard to imagine the standard deviation uh, of the share price not being a lot higher than the dividend standard deviation, and that is the case. And if you look at the example that I use in, in, in uh, the dividend imperative is Procter & Gamble, you know, we know Procter & Gamble 
to be a very steady business, uh, and it, it, it's, you can see that that it's uh, in, in the book. It's you know the standard deviation of the dividend growth rate is is two percent. The standard deviation of either earnings uh, or other measures of, of change in the business is a little bit higher, and of course, then the, the share price is just all over the place. Mm-hmm. So, um, you your sense that this doesn't look right that this tremendous volatility associated with share prices seems counterintuitive for businesses that you know to be pretty stable is 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 spot on and i think that in, in investment <laughs> investment products and and uh, would be better suited to focus on building around that income stream which is not volatile rather than the share price which mm-hmm. is volatile I mean, it reminds me of a sports analogy, and I used to be very into sports statistics. But you know, if you take football for example, especially fantasy football, it would be like um, picking a team on the basis of how many yards they gained, rather than whether they won or lost. Like you know, a team can like, really put up great numbers in terms of yards gained, but they can lose mm-hmm. every game. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's just noise, really, because at the end of the yeah, day, it, it, you want to know whether they I won or almost- not. <laughs> Almost everyone, I think, in their own life can look at an example where this – and this is back to the data set and why, you know, if you're looking at commodity data sets, which are just really prices, and then go to stock prices and try to apply the same math, you, you kind of get you, – you, you're lost in the maze of, of share prices, and uh, you, you're not – you're missing the point. But I think everyone in, in whatever their field of endeavor can be uh, or even just their personal lives can say, yeah, I know there's a data set around here. But it doesn't really describe what's meaningful, uh, and you know it, it, it's missing the point. You know, uh, uh, in, in uh, the data sets used to describe things, you know, in, in teaching and sort of scores and testing, the testing culture that we have in this country. I think most teachers would say that testing culture misses the point. Uh, it, it creates a whole dynamic around the test scores that is uh, separate from the actual learning experience of children. And again, I just pulled that at random. You, you right. just pulled your, 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 your football yeah. analogy. It's not hard to come up with a lot yeah. of these. The, the thing is that <laughs> this system touches everyone. It touches everyone that works at a university, a lot of your listeners, uh, everyone that is, has a 401k of some form or another, or some sort of pension plan. Uh, and again, pensions are, are managed according to these 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 uh, you know, often dividend unfriendly rules. It, it affects you know uh, uh, you know most people in this society directly or indirectly. Um, uh, I was going to say, and, ask ask public workers in Detroit right now. Yeah, yeah, and where and I, I recently was at a presentation at another another city uh, where we help manage some of the retirement assets in the. Uh, the you know they 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 run the money they have to run the money it's kind of almost uh, legally entrenched now in the system according to really according to the system but it's going to be very very hard to get to their meet their objective uh, needs uh, for most uh, many of these you know municipalities or uh, uh, given given the management of money in this in this manner. So, um, you know, the systems, the intellectual underpinning, the systems do matter. And again, I think the, the analogy with the teachers and, and testing or the football statistics is a good one. You can see a lot of, you know, uh, it may well be the case that a football player's uh, salary is determined by the number of yards run, mm-hmm. even if that person doesn't contribute to ultimately a winning team. Uh, you know, there's a lot at stake in people's lives with uh, the testing scores, and there's a lot of pe- a lot of things at stake with people's lives in in their retirement yeah. accounts. People should spend more time thinking about, hey, is this 
structured, you know, where did this structure come from? Mm-hmm. And is it working? Is it a good idea? Well, you mentioned measures. And so uh, I, I think most of the listeners and I am, it, it, we know about the S&P 500 and the, you know, they have these, these numbers and you can look at a stock price. And so that's a nice a bit of serial data and it appears, you know, all over the Wall Street Journal, things like this. Is there a, is there a metric that companies or, or, or that, that somebody puts out that would capture what you're talking about? Is it on the, in one of the pages of the Wall Street Journal or someplace online that says, okay, these are the companies that, routinely pay out um, uh, dividends in relation to how they do and also historically over time have paid out a lot in dividends? Yeah, I mean, there's sort of a how-to section at the end of the the end of the strategic dividend investor, or you can hire Federated to do this for you. But one way you can simply look at things is you can look at the dividend yield of an individual stock investment. uh, And you look at the dividend payout ratio of, uh, that is how much of their profits Mm -hmm. Are, are paid out, and you're going to find that the yields of the companies are higher where they have higher payout ratios, and the yields will be lower where they have lower payout ratios, often zero uh, for those companies <laughs> that don't pay dividends. Uh, and that information, you know, on the clutter of a Yahoo Finance or the your your whatever your finance screen of choice is, actually the, the dividend yield will be there. It's just one of the numbers you just need to, to take a look at it, and the, and the dividend payout ratio is is really easy to calculate. Uh, so it, the information's there. It's just overwhelmed by the share price information. You know how the share price doing the last three months. How the share price right. doing the last twelve months. Uh, and then buried on the bottom row is uh, yeah, it has a dividend and it's yielding four percent. That mm-hmm. type of thing. And mm-hmm. and so you can make your way. You'll find uh, investors will find either that you know it's uh, this takes a fair amount of time to do it. Either they will want to hire a professional to do that, or if they're going to do it themselves. It, it 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 is you know it can be laborious to uh, to track dividends, forecast dividend growth, and, and that's effectively what what uh, you know my day job. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. So I want to get to one thing before uh, we're done with the interview, and this is in the uh, dividend imperative. You're not a big fan of these great stock buybacks. I mean, know that uh, isn't it Dell or something? A bunch of people want to Dell to buy back their stock or something like this. Why why are these a, a bad idea to you? Yeah, so uh, there's some securities change, uh, securities law change in the 1980s that uh, uh, allowed uh, companies to buy back their own shares and, in theory, reduce their share uh, out, uh, count outstanding. That is, instead of having 100 shares outstanding, they might have 90. In which case, if you were one of the people who didn't sell, you would own instead of you know uh, you would own a larger stake in the corporation. Um, and uh, they had not. Prior to the 1990s, been a particularly they were in many cases they were illegal because they're viewed as they were viewed as speculation uh, or manipulation of share prices. But they became regulated and therefore legal in the 1990s. And combined with the intellectual buttressing of modern portfolio theory and M&M, which suggested that a share a share price gain, a capital appreciation, was the same thing as a dividend payment, many corporations said, "Hey, we'll we'll buy back our own stock. It'll help push up the share price if people." And, and therefore, it's, it'll be similar to a dividend in the sense that they'll show some return from the higher share prices, even though there'll be a smaller dividend. Mm-hmm. That uh, that that took off, uh, and share repurchases are now kind of dwarf dividend payments. And I, I have the lines crossing in a couple charts in in the dividend imperative. The problem is, share repurchase programs are terribly timed. They don't reduce share count. They don't push up share prices. Uh, they are have ended up being often a form of 
kind of lavish compensation for senior executives. And if you think about it, if your grandma, if you're a long-term holder of a business and you're not interested in selling your shares, you, you derive no benefit from the share purchase program because, again, it's really just money that goes back into the stock market. It doesn't lower the share count, so it doesn't increase grandma's stake that much, uh, nowhere near as much as it's claimed to. And uh, companies are constantly issuing shares. They're buying back their shares on one hand and issuing them on the other hand to, to uh, uh, through mergers and acquisitions or to in, as far as part of employee compensation. The timing is terrible. Bef- uh, share repurchase programs tend to peak right before crises. And then when shares fall and, and buying back shares would seem like a really good idea, there's no money left in the, in the, mm-hmm. in the kitty to buy back the shares. So uh, a lot of uh, the dividend imperative is suggesting that the money that was shifted from dividend payments to share repurchases in the 1980s and 90s into the present day has a tremendous disservice to investors. You're, you know, you're wondering where your, your share of the profits is. You see these companies have a lot of profits based on their quarterly releases, and you, you gave a notable example, and you say, where's your share? Well, your share of those profits actually went back into the stock market, mm-hmm. though you, can't, you don't really benefit from that. And so... Um, that's a big, big point that, uh, you know, I, I've, it's, it's a, a daily challenge. We are constantly seeking from uh, U.S. corporations uh, that they send their profits out in a check to company owners, uh, but many of these corporations are enamored of the share repurchase program. Uh, they have the intellectual, uh, you know, uh, uh, basis through modern portfolio theory to justify and say, hey, it's just as good as a dividend payment, though it is not, and uh, and and off they go. And that's, you know, the second book was written in part out of, of frustration with U.S. corporations uh, for their preference uh, for sharing purchases over dividend payments. Mm-hmm. Um, let me ask you this: Are I don't know quite how to put it. Uh, how uh, how are your relationships with other portfolio managers and the people that run these big institutional investment houses? I mean, you are going against the grain. Do they have like a little Dan Paris doll that they poke, you know, pins into uh, or something, or or do they love you? A, that no, that's a great. That's fun, that's the fun part of the job. So the corporations who we own or have spoken to, they say, oh, no, here comes the dividend guy. Oh, <laughs> boy, boy. Uh, the, yeah, we know what you want. Yeah, 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 we've heard that all before. But here's a hedge fund co- uh, owner who loves the share price. Yeah. And uh, so we're beginning to get a name among the corporations because we are actively trying to convince corporations to um, to – to back off on the share purchase programs in favor of dividends. And, and it's a constant conversation with, with corporations. My uh, peers who are running more traditional portfolios, which are all about beating a benchmark and beating a benchmark by, uh, by more than other investment managers might beat the benchmark or even underperforming a benchmark. And we haven't even gotten to the benchmarks and we, we won't because there isn't time. But it's a whole different world of relative benchmark performance. Again, it's an explicit outgrowth of modern portfolio theory. We were, were in separate businesses. When I, in earlier years, I would hold meetings with companies in the same room with some of these portfolio managers and analysts who were interested in relative benchmark performance. And we were just 
not on the same wavelength in terms of our questions and conversations with companies. So frankly, in recent years, we've shifted more to just just trying to go to company headquarters and get a little time uh, and speak to the, uh, the companies directly in the absence of the hedge fund guys, because the hedge fund guys want to talk about what's going to move the share price in the next few months or weeks. And we want to talk about what's going to, what's the long-term dividend growth rate over the next five to 10 years. Mm-hmm. And those are very different conversations. And so it's kind of pointless trying to be in the same room together. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. what they do, there's nothing, you know, it's not illegal, immoral, trying to beat the stock market, but it's so different from the business that, that we're running that uh, we have relatively little to do with, mm-hmm. uh, with those folks. Do you think Jim Cramer's going to have you on and yell at you or anything like that? <laughs> <laughs> Somehow, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not waiting around for that for that invitation. Yeah, I can. I can imagine. Uh, I can imagine that you're not. Uh, today we've been talking with Dan Paris, who's the author of the Strategic Dividend Investor: Why Slow and Steady Wins the Race, and the Dividend Imperative: How Dividends Can Narrow the Gap Between Main Street and Wall Street. I want to thank everybody for listening to this show, but I especially want to thank Dan for talking with us today. Thanks, Dan. Marshall, it was my pleasure. Thank All you right. very okay, much. Okay. Bye bye.